Upon landing in Saigon, one would most likely hear the boisterous melody of the city. Thousands of tiny motifs of mopeds, cars, taxis, yelling people, construction noises, running children in their bright colored sandals, rolling luggage carts, combine into one chaotic piece of music. It's the music that Saigon is known for, the music that keeps the city alive, the music that native Saigoners like me hold dear to our hearts. My name is Nian Fan, and welcome to the Vietnamese Narrative Podcast. April 30th, 1975, Saigon, the major city hub in the south end of the S-shaped country in Southeast Asia, had fallen to the Viet Cong, ending just over 20 years of conflict between the communist-backed northern government and the U.S.-backed southern government. It was more famously known as the Fall of Saigon. The two halves of the country then were unified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Military police got back into the compound of the $2.5 million embassy complex at dawn. Before that, a platoon of Viet Cong were in control. The communist raiders never got into the main chancery building. A handful of marines had it locked and kept them out. But the raiders were everywhere else. By daylight, Tonga, located, was a battleground. No one, unless identified, was allowed in the street. Early Monday morning, 7th June 2022, I sat down at the Propaganda Bistro on Hang Tuing Street with my iPad in hand. It was my first Vietnamese breakfast since arriving back in Saigon two nights ago. I was eager to experience the springing into life of the central business district of the city. In March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic was announced by the World Health Organization. Within the two years that followed the announcement, the soul of Ho Chi Minh City had seemingly been sucked out. Streets were once eerily silent, absent of the revving of motorcycles, the honking of cars, trucks, and buses, and the hollering of Saigoneers that gives the city so much of its energy. On the trip to the airport in September 2021, I saw Saigon ravaged by lockdown orders, masks, military personnel, misery, and want. I saw barricaded streets with police officers refusing to let motorcycles through. I saw shut-down neon signs and unlit billboards in decay. I saw people peeking out from their balconies to talk to their neighbors, trading food for supplies, toiletries for stationaries. Perhaps, as I landed in Tantanyet International Airport just days earlier, I was landing in a different Vietnam than the one I had remembered leaving just nine months ago. I sat down on a red plastic chair facing the 30th of April Park, named after the day the country was reunified. 
On my side is the Notre Dame Cathedral of Saigon, built between 1863 and 1880 by the French colonists, who initially named it the Church of Saigon, or the L'Église de Saigon in French. The bistro is plastered in Vietnamese wartime propaganda, hence why the bistro itself was named propaganda, and freedom murals with imagery of children of peace, doves, and the image of the ever-so-patriotic ordinary teacher, farmer, engineer, and factory worker of a war-torn Vietnam. The red plastic chairs and plastic tables on pavement tiles probably must be a Vietnamese signature. It takes skill to crouch down to one of those many sets of tables and chairs. I ordered a cup of cafe sude, or Vietnamese iced milk coffee in a plastic to-go cup with a white striped straw protruding off the four-split opening on the top of the lid, and a plate of gum dum, or broken rice with sweet fish sauce and marinated grilled pork ribs. Something about that felt awfully Vietnamese. An old man in his 80s on a bike, with scaffolding mounted to the back of the bike, held up the day's print newspaper edition, selling it for about 3,000 Vietnamese dong an edition. I couldn't imagine anyone reading print in this day and age, especially with news notifications flashing by the hour on phones and tablets. But something about it felt nostalgic of the Vietnam just several decades ago. Parked in front of me are cars and motorcycles. Back then were tricycle carriages, Vespa scooters, and rusty bikes. I opened my iPad and began writing this episode, and I thought of the Vietnam I know now versus the Vietnam I wasn't born in time to witness. While in Ho Chi Minh City, I went to the one person I knew who had the most accurate recount of what Vietnam was like before and after the war. This is my grandma, Miss Lop, who was born in 1950 in a small town in Duyên Quang, on the northern side of Vietnam. She moved to Quy Nhơn and then to Ho Chi Minh City at the beginning of her retirement. I asked her about what life was like when she was young. When I was young, the war was still going on. My hometown back then was very poor. Poor because it had to weather the war. People had to evacuate and avoid bombs, shells, and bullets. All the time when I went to school, I had to help to build tiny bamboo shacks to study in. They were the little schools. I had to wear a chrome straw hat to avoid detection. It was rough, but everyone was eager to learn, eager to carry with them the knowledge to help them grow up and mature. During those days, there were no parks, no play. People lived very naturally, very primitively. Their instincts were natural. Instead of going to parks, malls, and sites, I remembered seeing kids play in rivers and forests and on dirt roads. It was difficult back then, very difficult. I asked her about what her house was like back in the 1950s. 
It was like other towns. Houses back then were not poured with concrete and layered with bricks. It was made out of bamboo sticks and branches. And the roof was layered with palm leaves. Everyone lived in one of those houses, in those bamboo cottages, as I like to call them. We had electricity, but each family only received one light bulb. Everything was really frugal and conserved back then, too. I then asked her about 1975, when she found out that the South had been liberated by the Viet Cong, the North. Her husband had to enlist in the military. He was serving the Viet Cong army in Saigon then. When she found out that Saigon was liberated, tears of joy filled her eyes as she ran out of her house in cheer. That moment, in her opinion, changed Vietnam forever. The noon before Saigon was liberated, everyone was working in their offices until stereos and radios in the town announced, Liberation! Liberation! The South is liberated! So I rushed out of my office like everyone else. Everyone cried and was very emotional since from now on the country will no longer be separated. The two halves of the country will finally be unified. More importantly, Grandma will definitely return them. I was very happy. The next day, vivid flags and flowers lined the neighborhoods. Everyone had to try and have a red paper flag with a yellow star. We marched around all the nearby towns, one group at a time. All in all, it was a lot of fun. The liberation of Saigon, more than anything, changed the perception of the people of Ho Chi Minh. There is no longer malice and aversion to the people of the North or to the Viet Cong. In the past, people used to attribute the Viet Cong to poverty, hunger and misery. But through the changes following the reunification, people from both sides understood that with direction from the state, Ho Chi Minh City is evolving more and more. Ho Chi Minh and the people of the South evolved dynamically. Now, everyone entering Ho Chi Minh is asking why the city is so beautiful especially at night with street lights, high rises and bustling people. She had also reflected on other impacts that the liberation of Saigon and the reunification of this country had on the city. The first change is with the Saigon economy. Ho Chi Minh's economy is the largest in the country. The more developed the city is, the more companies take interest in the city and the more factories are erected. Especially more foreign investors are coming to Saigon, creating jobs and income for the Ho Chi Minh people. That is the fundamental change. The second change is with the people of Ho Chi Minh. The income that Ho Chi Minh reports to the state is gigantuan, taking up half of the country's income. The development of Ho Chi Minh is strong, not just in the economy, but in traffic, innovation, and culture. The people in Ho Chi Minh are much more lively and boisterous than before. We reflected on how far Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh City had come after the war. Before the war, littered streets with abandoned military equipment. Gray skies colored with smoke from planes and helicopters from surrendering southern forces. And crumbled houses with small buildings. After the war, brick-layered houses with tiled roofs and cemented foundations. 
expanded roads, highways, and infrastructure, with electric cables, water pipes, and sewage systems, with internet access, and a lively rhythm that Ho Chi Minh ever so proudly boasts. There is no night and no day. The city does not sleep. After the war, there is peace, leisure, and prosperity. But there is something that feels innately missing from the Vietnamese narrative that I had mentioned. A narrative about how Vietnam, after numerous hardships, had found its way to becoming a unified modern nation. This notion of Vietnamese development is a notion that is understood by most Vietnamese natives, yet it is also a notion that's not usually explored within the scope of rapid economic, infrastructural, and societal development are stories of the evolution of Vietnamese values and culture. Within the facade of a modern Vietnamese landscape are historical relics, wreckages, or remnants of a forgotten time. Whether that be the permanent scars of soldiers who traversed forests to mountains during wars, historical prisons and detention houses from wartime, to ruins of cultural and communal symbols that had defined the communities they surrounded, all these relics are in many ways vessels that contain valuable, unrecorded stories of past societies as well as earmarks of progress since post-war Vietnam. These are relics of Vietnamese history and heritage that I'm determined to rediscover. Before I continue, I would like to spend a section of this episode acknowledging my own positionality as I embark on this project. Coming from a place of privilege, I acknowledge that I am privileged enough to have the resources available in order for me to travel, record, and produce this podcast. I also acknowledge that the stories I am trying to represent and discover are under different circumstances from my own. Some circumstances include socioeconomic status, ethnicity, tribal identification, language, and gender. The retelling of these stories is not coming from a place of power, but instead from a place of empathy. All interview participants have consented to have their stories recorded and have provided me with guidelines regarding how they want their perspectives represented. I understand that representations are inherently unfair and unjust if the subject of representation does not have a say in how they are being represented. Hence, I have made it a priority to ensure the representation of the stories I come across throughout my journey is the fairest representation possible. Follow me as I travel around Vietnam to rediscover and record stories of historical relics of a bygone era in Vietnamese history and discover how they contributed to the Vietnamese narrative. The stories of the past that those relics can offer can tell us a great deal about how the Vietnamese story had evolved from after the war. Join me to discover a heritage-rich side of Vietnam that's not commonly discovered to both locals and tourists alike. This is the Vietnamese Narrative Podcast.